Thanks, Chris. Appreciate yeah. you, man. Thanks. Hey, give you. Chris, give yeah. Chris a hand, and thank you for our worship team this morning. Certainly glad to hear what God is doing. God has not stopped His work these past twenty weeks, and we are to be grateful and thankful for the blessings that God has allowed us at Northwest to see in Him. I read an article this week, um, and Chris was talking about this, but there are churches across our nation in America that have not been open for 20 weeks. There are people in our congregation that are faithful members that have not been to a service or congregated together, gathering together for 20 weeks. And yet God is not surprised by that. God is actually on the move to accomplish his will. As we go further and further along in Acts, we see this. The church is is happy. They're gathering together in the temple courts. They're fellowshipping with one another. They're devoting themselves to the teaching of the word of God. And then all of a sudden, persecution happens. And yet God is in it. Why? Because the church begins to scatter and take the message of the gospel and fulfill the mission of God to the ends of the earth. God is moving in the midst of a pandemic. This is a crucial time for our church. This is a crucial time for the church in America. The mission of God on the forefront of our hearts, exactly what Chris said, we may have to give up some of our conveniences, some of our traditions, some of our things that we have held dear to, because it may look different in the post-pandemic world for God's church. But people need to hear the gospel, and they need gospel proclaimers to rise up in their neighborhoods, in their cities, in their states, and to go to the world. The world is watching what the people of God, his church, will do. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters around our nation. We need to pray for our churches in our city We need to pray for the people of God that they would stand strong and be counted and proclaim the gospel through the power of God. That's what we're talking about here in Acts. We started our series last week in Acts 1 as we see the power of God at work amongst his people in his church. We saw The promised Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is coming. The power and the presence of God to dwell in and among God's people. Jesus goes up to heaven and 10 days later, as the people of God, the disciples gather together in prayer, God comes in their midst. 
at a time called Pentecost, 50 days after the festival. Another name for this festival is the Feast of Harvest. As God pours out his spirit in a mighty, invisible way, and 3,000 people are saved as a result of the gospel being preached through the power of the Spirit of God. And today we're going to study the filling of this Spirit. What does it look like for the church to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the people of God, the power and the presence of God amongst His people? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promises to us, to his disciples, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, the mission of God comes first, and then the church of God comes. The church of God exists for the mission of God. God didn't say, oh, now that I have a church, now that I have these believers, I must now give them something to do. No, he gives the mission of God and he equips the church to fulfill the mission of God. The church is the vehicle in which God fulfills his mission. Last week, we talked about how the church is the called out ones who gather together around this mission of God. Guess what? Sometimes we lose sight of that. The German word Kirche is actually where we get the English word church. And it means a place where you gather for religious purposes. But that is not the church that we see in Acts. It's not the church, the called out ones who are gathered together for a purpose of God. That's not what we see in the Greek of what the definition of the church is. People empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish the mission of God. And God shows himself in a mighty, mighty way that he is here to work in and through his church. In Acts chapter 2, added it is at its birth. What an awesome and mighty sight. And when we read this this morning, I want... You to behold our God. Buckle your seatbelt in because we're about to experience the power and the presence of God shown to us by Luke in Acts chapter 2. Let's turn there with us to Acts chapter 2 and read together. If you'll stand in honor of reading God's word, that's what we do at Northwest, as we see, this is the very word of God. Remember, <clears throat> the disciples are gathering together in a room. They've gone back to Jerusalem. And the day of Pentecost arrived. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read it together. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like the mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as each of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Capacedonia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. You may be seated. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we ask this morning that as we read this passage of Scripture and see what you are doing in showing your Spirit coming upon the people of God, we ask that you move our hearts, that you cause us to see and behold our God And Father, help us as the people, your church, to carry out your will through the Spirit of God, empowering us to accomplish your purposes and your will for your glory. Lord, help us to see you. Help us to be led by you. Convict our hearts. Help us to see the presence and the holiness of a mighty God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in Scripture, we see the awesomeness, the mightiness, the holiness of our great God and the separation between a sinful man. Multiple times we see this presence of God as a consuming fire, getting ready to consume mankind because of their wickedness. We see in the Old Testament God's presence dwelling among his people, but it was in the tabernacle and ultimately the temple in which God's presence would dwell. 
This would be the dwelling place for God. And what separated mankind from the holy and righteous God was a place called the Holy of Holies, in which there was a a veil that was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. The picture of the veil was a barrier between man and God, showing man that the holiness of God could not be trifled with. You see, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate sin. He is a consuming fire. The veil was a barrier to make sure that no man could enter carelessly or irreverently into the presence of God himself. Even the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies only on the Day of Atonement, and he had to make meticulous preparations before he entered into the presence of God. He had to wash himself. He had to put on special clothing. He had to bring burning incense to let the smoke cover his eyes from a direct view of God. And he had to bring blood in with him to make atonement for the sins of his people and himself. Hebrews 9, 7 says this, but only the high priest entered into the inner room, and that was only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had committed them in ignorance. One time, the story of God in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it tells us that they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant which inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, which presented the presence or the smoke or the cloud in which represented the presence of God. And this Ark of the Covenant was was traveling upon poles and they're supposed to travel on poles and and the, the men of God say, no, we'll just carry it on a cart. And the oxen stumble, and the guy driving the cart, Uzzah, puts his hand out to hold the ark in place, and he dies right there on the spot. Why? Because the holiness and the righteousness of God, he is a consuming fire. King David at that time is like, I'm not sure I can transport the ark. So he waits a time and God blesses the ark in which is in the home of of a man. And David decides he's going to transport the ark into Jerusalem. And every six steps, he sacrifices to the Lord an offering of praise. That's who we're talking about when we're talking about the power and the presence of God. So how does the power and the presence of God dwell in his church, in his people today? 
It is because of Christ. It is because of the blood of Christ. It is because of the cross of Christ in which the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus as a propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of mankind. When Jesus died on the cross, Matthew tells us Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. John tells us, he says, it is finished. Matthew 27, 51 tells us, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split. And as the veil was torn, the holy of holies was now exposed. God's presence was now accessible to all through the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus now has made us righteous, those who have placed their faith in him, giving us the ability to enter into the presence of God. Hebrews 10, 19 describes this as, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the veil that, it, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He washes us to be regenerate, to be new, clean from an evil conscience. We are considered righteous by the blood of Christ. I hope you understand this before we dig into the passage this morning. God is holy. Man is not. Therefore, we need Christ, the satisfaction and atonement for sin. And because of the atonement and satisfaction of sin, God now pours his spirit out upon his people in the church. He tells us the down payment for eternal life is the presence of God dwelling amongst his people. This is Jesus continued, the Spirit's presence at work in his people. But until we are one day in the presence of God, in eternity, God has a mission for us. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to accomplish that mission. Look at verse 1 with me in chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And like a mighty rushing wind, it, 
It filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is our first point this morning. The presence of God comes to fill the people of God. The presence of God comes to fill the people of God. In the Greek and Hebrew, the word for spirit means wind, breath, spirit. You oftentimes see this association of these three things. Jesus with Nicodemus talks about the wind and and you have the breathing in, in, in Ezekiel when he takes him to the dry bones. The spirit of God takes him there and you see it in creation with the breath and you see this spirit, the wind and the breath and it's no different here in Acts chapter 2 when this mighty rushing wind comes about to enter the spirit of God. The Spirit in the Old Testament is responsible for God's creative power. In Genesis, the Spirit hovers over the waters at creation. The Spirit is evident about bringing new life in Ezekiel, which we talked about, in which Ezekiel tells him to preach to the dry bones, and God breathes life into them. The Spirit is the one that takes Ezekiel to the dry bones. The Spirit also empowers people in the Old Testament to lead or to judge God's people. He also empowers them to fulfill the calling on the mission of God in which he has given them, whether they be kings or military powers, such as Samson or Joshua. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit empowers people to design and decorate God's temple the tabernacle, to interpret dreams and visions such as Daniel, and also to speak and write the truth through God's prophets. The Spirit of God was active in the Old Testament, but often the Spirit of God was only accessible to specific people to accomplish a specific purpose But that purpose was always for the glory of God. In the New Testament, the access to the Holy Spirit is to all who believe in Christ. Jesus promised to send the Spirit to accomplish his mission. John 20, 21 says this, Then Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And the fulfillment of this is now at Pentecost as they hear and see the manifestation of the power and the presence of God. You see the mighty rushing wind here in verse 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and filled the house where they were sitting. <clears throat> the mighty rushing wind is like a tornado. And if you've ever heard the, the, the boom 
the tremble of the tornado, that's what these believers were feeling. And I, I begin to imagine myself hearing this noise and this rattle and this shake as it comes to the, the house in which they're praying and gathering together. And I can imagine that they begin to tremble. And I think back where God's people begin to tremble at the presence of God on Mount Sinai when they received the law. Let me read this to you, Exodus 19, 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of kiln and the whole mountain greatly trembled. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. This is actually why the Jews are celebrating Pentecost 50 days after the Passover. The law is given to God's people, and now God comes down again in fire and in the presence and the power of God amongst his people. Except this time, he's coming to present the new covenant in the spirit of the living God. And they also not only see this presence of God, they not only see the power of God, they also see the presence of God. As God fills the room, just like he did in the dedication of the temple with Solomon, it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Second Chronicles 7 tells us where God fills the temple. After the dedication of the temple, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of God filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of God because the glory of God filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So just as it filled the temple, it also filled the room in which The disciples were gathering, and then they see these tongues of fire. Just as God brought fire down, we see God as representative by a consuming fire. We see the burning bush as he speaks to Moses. This is holy ground. Take off your sandals. And he leads God's people by night through the pillar of fire. 
Hebrews 12, 28 says this, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see the the thought process here, you can see the connection of worship and awe and reverence and fear of this God. And these fire above their heads is representative of tongues. And these tongues represent what he's going to do in and through his spirit as the church is now going to share his word in all tribes, all tongues, and all languages on the face of the earth. The Spirit of God bringing forth the word of God to go to every language on the face of the earth. Now we see the power and presence of God not only outside of the people, but then he enters into the church to make sure that the people understand the power and the presence of God is now moving inside of them. Verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them Utterance. The Spirit now speaks through men and is clear to all that are gathered there and all that witness this that the Spirit of the living God, the presence of the living God, has now dwelt and is inside of His people, His church. Let's look at verse 5 as we go on here. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of, of us in, our own, in his own native language? He lists a lot of places on the earth and people groups on the earth. In verse 11, both Jews, proselytes, Christians, and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is our second point this morning. The Spirit declares the mighty works of God. The Spirit declares the mighty works of God. So not only does the Spirit come to fill his people, but the Spirit wants to declare God. We read last week that the Spirit will glorify Christ. We see him declaring the works of God. These people from all over the world, have come for the festival. They can hear 
in their own languages. These are Jews from all over the world, dispersed. And they're coming back to worship God. And God is calling out their home or their native language and saying the gospel is for your language and your nation too. Yet these people that are speaking in different languages and tongues, they are Galileans. We would say they're country folk, right? They're not from the city. It's like a guy from Poto, Oklahoma, speaking Chinese. This doesn't happen too often. No doubt people from Poto are distinguished, but they often don't speak other languages. They like to fish and play paintball, right? But these are not some languages. These are all languages that are gathered there at this festival. Isn't that amazing? You think God is trying to tell us something through his spirit, speaking all the known languages at that time, at this festival? The very first gospel presentation was all the languages on the face of the earth. It's like a reversal of the Tower of Babel. What happened in the Tower of Babel? God divided the tongues. He divided the languages. Why? Because of the wickedness of man. And now he's redeeming that because he wants to extol the mighty works of God to the nations. And he does that through his spirit. You know, when we look at this passage and we talk about tongues, everybody wants to tell me, but pastor, what about all of these things in the Pentecostal movement? And I mean, what about the speaking in tongues? What about the running lanes, the tambourines, the gold glitter falling from the rafters, being slain in the spirit, private prayer languages, angelic languages? Look, I can tell you two very important things from this passage. I, I know I need to address it. But number one, from this passage, what they are saying is glorifying to God. Number one, what they are saying is glorifying to God. It makes a difference. The Spirit desires to glorify Christ. Its desire is not to glorify Rob Lindley. Its desire is not to glorify yourself. Spiritual gifts are for the glory of God, for the building up of the body of Christ. So what they are saying here is glorifying to God. Number two, they are speaking known languages. The example we see here in Acts chapter 2 is not gibberish, but clear, intelligible language for people to see the Spirit of God now dwells in man. The Holy Spirit has now come, as was promised, in the power and the presence of God. And that power and presence of God that was seen in the room is now filling God's people and is coming out as tongues. Tongues. 
Now, I'm not preaching 1 Corinthians 14 today, okay? So some of you are going, well, what, what about this and that and your thought process? But I will tell you this. Paul's argument in that chapter is to strive to excel in building up the church. And that's what we ought to be doing at Northwest. Speaking in tongues without an interpretation is not helpful for the building up of the church. That's what Paul says. It is also not helpful in sharing the gospel with lost people who are entering the gathering. That's what Paul says. So speak the word of God when you come together. That's what his argument is. And that's what we do. We speak the word of God for the edification of the body and the glorification of Christ. Please don't be distracted from that, those statements, from what God wants you to see today from his word, that the spirit of the living God has come to dwell in his church to declare the mighty works of God to all the nations. Sometimes we get hung up on tongues in this passage and we miss the power and the presence of God. How can we do that? So what is God doing declaring the mighty works of God in all these languages? Thanks for asking. God is declaring the gospel is for all nations. A missionary tells a story about a Kurdish man who was helping him translate the Bible into his language. And they came to Acts in the translation, and he was reading this passage, and you can see in here, it says the Medes, Parthians and Medes. And Kurdish, Kurdish people are in northern Iraq. There's some in Turkey, but they, he read that passage, and as soon as he was translating, his pencil dropped. And he said, my people were there at the beginning of the church. Now think about that. Think about all the peoples here that they see. We see some, some of these names and we understand it. Some of them we don't. Libya, Crete, Arabians, Medes, Parthians. They were there at the beginning. God spoke their language. He wants them to hear the gospel. The spirit of God drives the gospel witness to the ends of the earth. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 gives us this picture in heaven. It says this, the elders are around the throne and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, talking about Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, 
tells of the eternal presence of the throne room of God and what it will look like. And this is what it says in Revelation 7, 9. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, this is really what the Spirit wants to do in and through you. He wants to declare who this great God is and his mighty works through Christ. This is what the church does. It declares the message of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the good news. It is that the righteous and holy God would love his creation so much that he would send his son to die for sinners, people who are deserving of the wrath and the judgment of God, who are separated from God, can now come into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. That deserves an amen. Amen? This is what we see happening here. God is showing his church that the Holy Spirit is now come. And God is showing his church the Spirit is here to declare to the nations the mighty works of God. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed. You'll see this multiple times throughout Acts, the amazement perplexed, confused, not sure what they are seeing. And they said to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new mind. Uh, now, let me, let me just be clear here. There is always going to be people that mock spirit-filled church, okay? A spirit-filled church should look a little different. Should. But there will always be detractors. Our third point this morning is this, the spirit brings awe and wonder to people. Not only awe and wonder to the people of God, which hopefully they're experiencing the power and the presence of God on a daily basis, but it brings awe and wonder to people who do not yet know this God and his story of Christ. You see, the Spirit's work is always accompanied by or followed by bold proclamation of the gospel. What ends up happening after Peter's sermon, which you're going to hear from Alan next week as he preaches that, Alan Marks, one of our, one of our pastors here, you're going to hear it preached. And after that preaching, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. They're not safe because Peter is a good preacher. 
but because of the power and the presence of God and the declaration of his word. People should look at the spirit inside of you, inside of me, inside of our church, and they should say, wow, what is that? What is going on in that person? How does he radically give like that? How, how does he radically love like that? How, how, does, he, how does he serve like that? How, how, how does he pray like that? How does he see the word? How does he study the word like that? They should say, I don't know. I've never seen that. What does this mean? It's funny how we think of Samson and Joshua. Man, these guys had so much power. The presence of God was upon them. And yet the same spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead is poured out upon God's church to accomplish his mission. Everyone who believes in Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, which we just studied. You can go back to that sermon. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that we are sealed or we are stamped. We are solidified with the Holy Spirit. But there is a difference between being sealed. I mean, we're promised eternal life and being filled. Paul actually prays to be, for the church to be filled and later in Ephesians with all the fullness of God. Even though every believer has the spirit of conversion, Paul urges the church to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. You're controlled by a substance. You are controlled by the spirit of the living God. The power and the presence of God is able to move freely in your life. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, do not quench the spirit of God. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the spirit of God. Even people who are sealed with the Holy Spirit can suppress the will of God for their life and not allow the spirit to lead. In a spirit-led church, or in a spirit-led person, the power and the presence of God now has the ability to move freely without restriction. He has been given complete control to do his will. But when the spirit is suppressed with our own desires, when we led by the flesh, the power of God is not going to be seen in our life. We are like Samson without hair, trying to do the work of God. We're like King Saul, trying to lead God's people without the power and presence of God. And that is why the power and the presence of God should bring us to repentance and faith in Christ. Just as Isaiah, who is in the presence of God, declares, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. When we understand and see the power and the presence of God, we are convicted of sin. 
We see the righteousness of Christ and the consuming fire and the judgment of God is coming for sinners. And we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to end with this question this morning. The question is this. Is Christianity a set of beliefs to which you consent and a lifestyle you follow? Or is it an interaction with the spirit of the living God? Just to be honest with you, sometimes we view God as this big. We put him in our hearts. He's this big. And then we just do whatever we want to do. There may be some of you this morning that need to repent. The need to turn and believe upon Christ for salvation so that the spirit of the living God can seal you. The presence of God can indwell you, can change your heart and your mind to love the things of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The creator of the universe wants to come and dwell inside of you to empower you to do the works and the mission of God? Will you yield to his call?